Chapter Twenty Four, Sections Two and Three of J. B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Student's Roman Empire, Part Two, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter Twenty Four, Trajan's Principate. Section Two. Administration of the Provinces, Correspondence of Pliny and Trajan The corruption of the governors of the senatorial provinces is illustrated by the cases of Marius Priscus and Cecilius Classicus, which occurred at the beginning of Trajan's reign. Marius Priscus, who had been proconsul of Africa, was accused in 99 AD by the provincials and prosecuted by Pliny and the historian Tacitus. The case came before the Senate in the following year, Trajan as consul presiding. It was proved that Marius had indeed fleeced the Ephri. For a bribe of three hundred thousand sesterces, he had banished a knight and put to death seven of his friends. He flogged, sentenced to the mines, and finally strangled another knight for a bribe of seven hundred thousand. The sentence of the court was that the seven hundred thousand should be paid to the aerarium and that Marius should be exiled from Italy. This was a poor compensation to the province for its sufferings. Soon after this, Pliny prosecuted Classicus, formerly governor of Bitica, at the instance of the inhabitants. His guilt was proved, but he died before the trial. In the administration of the provinces, Trajan's reign offers nothing noteworthy, except liberality in the construction of new roads, and the policy, already mentioned, of intervening in the affairs of free communities by means of a curator republicae, and sending special commissioners to senatorial provinces. Thus Sexus Quintilius Maximus was sent to Achaia, probably to supervise the affairs of the free states of Greece. In this policy Trajan did not aim at uniformity. He only adopted it in cases where special circumstances seemed to demand his intervention the wretched condition to which the province of Bithynia had been reduced by the incompetent rule of the senatorial proconsuls, was a case which called for the emperor's interference, and he saw good to make it, temporarily, an imperial province. He probably made the loss good to the senate by assigning to it the province of Pamphylia instead. He appointed Pliny as legatus Augusti pro praetori, to restore order in the demoralized province. The provincials had instituted suits against corrupt proconsuls, and while the proceedings had dragged slowly on, the finances had fallen into disorder, the public buildings remained unfinished, and social life had been completely paralyzed. Pliny, who had had no previous experience of provincial government, referred to the emperor for instruction on every question which arose, and their correspondence has come down to us. It shows us that Trajan was averse to treating different cases in the same way or applying a general rule, as Pliny suggested to do, to the whole province. He adopted the more equitable and more troublesome plan of paying regard to the local usages and special traditions of each community. It would be a great mistake to infer from the minute details with which the emperor concerned himself in the case of Bithynia, that he devoted the same attention to the minor affairs of all the other provinces of the empire. On the contrary, he seems to have laid a great deal of responsibility on the shoulders of the governors. Bithynia was a special case. 
Its condition at this time is one among many pieces of evidence that the government of the imperial provinces was far better than that of the senatorial. The correspondence of Trajan and Pliny gives a most interesting glimpse of the questions and affairs which the emperor had to deal with in governing the provinces, and it is all the more valuable as our record of Trajan's reign is otherwise meagre. The following abbreviated extracts from the correspondence will serve to give an insight into some sides of Roman provincial government. They will also illustrate the practical judgment of Trajan, and the narrow limits within which Pliny was permitted to decide for himself. 1. Imperial Authorization of Public Works Pliny. May the people of Prusa be authorized to replace their bathhouse, which is old and dilapidated, with new termi, money will be forthcoming for the work. Trajan? Yes, if the construction will not be too great a burden for their strength or necessitate the imposition of a special tax. Pliny. Sinope lacks water. I have found a copious spring of good quality sixteen miles away, but the aqueduct will have to pass for a distance of about a mile over soft and uncertain ground. I can easily raise the money required. It only remains for me to secure your approval." Trajan, make this aqueduct, but first carefully examine whether the suspicious locality can bear it, and whether the expense does not exceed the ability of the town. Pliny, Nicomedia has expended over three million sesterces, twenty-four thousand pounds, on an aqueduct which has been abandoned and is now in ruins, two million, sixteen thousand pounds, on another which has also been abandoned. I have means for making a third which will stand if you will send an inspector of aqueducts or an architect. Trajan, supply Nicomedia with water, but investigate by whose fault so much money has been wasted. Pliny, Nicaea has expended ten million sesterces, eighty thousand pounds, on a theatre which is tottering, and great sums on a gymnasium which was burned and which they are rebuilding. At Claudiopolis they are excavating a bathhouse at the foot of a mountain, with the money which the decurions appointed by you pay for their admission to the curia. What am I to do with respect to all these works? Send me an architect to advise. Trajan, you are on the spot, decide. As for architects, we at Rome sent to Greece for them. You will therefore find them about you. Pliny, a mistress is infected by a sewer which ought to be covered. If you permit the work to be executed, I have the money required. Trajan, cover this infectious stream. Pliny, there is a great lake on the confines of the territory of Nicomedia, Lake Sophon, about ten miles east of that city. It would be highly advantageous to connect it with the sea by a canal. Send me an engineer. Trajan, take care that the lake, in uniting with the sea, does not run out entirely. I will send you from here men conversant with this kind of work. 2. Supervision of Municipal Finances Pliny The money due to towns of the province has been called in, and no borrowers at twelve per cent are to be found. Ought I to reduce the rate of interest, or, if that fails to attract borrowers, compel the decurions to borrow the money in equal shares on suitable security? Trajan, put the interest low enough to find borrowers, but do not force anyone to borrow against his will. Such a course would be inconsistent with the temper of our century. Pliny, in the free and fettered city of Amissus, which, thanks to you, is governed by its own laws, a request has been handed to me, 
concerning societies for mutual aid, Erani. I mention the circumstance that you may consider how far they may be tolerated, and how far they must be forbidden. Trajan. Allow them their societies, which the Treaty of Federation gives them, especially if, instead of spending their contributions on illicit assemblies, they employ them to assist their poorer members. In the other towns which are subject to our dominion, it should not be permitted. Pliny, most of my predecessors have accorded to the towns of Pontus and Bithynia a priority of claim upon the property of their debtors. It would be well if some permanent regulation were made on this matter. Trajan, let it be decided according to the special laws of each town. If they have not a privilege over other creditors, I ought not to grant it to them at the expense of private individuals. Pliny, the inhabitants of the colony of Apemia request me to examine their accounts, despite their ancient privilege of administering their own affairs. Ought I to comply? Trajan, yes, since they themselves desire it. Assure them that your inspection is by my desire, and will not prejudice their privileges. Pliny, Julius Piso received forty thousand denarii twenty years ago as a public gift from Amissus. The public prosecutor, Acticus, claims this sum in accordance with your edicts, which forbid such acts of liberality. Piso urges the length of time that has elapsed, and professes that repayment would ruin him. Trajan, if the gift dates back more than twenty years, let it not be revoked, for we must regard the security of the individual citizens while taking care of the public funds. Pliny, I enclose a memorial of the Nicaeans. Trajan, they pretend to have received from Augustus the privilege of collecting the inheritance of all their fellow citizens who die intestate. Examine this affair in the presence of the parties, along with the procurators Gamelinus and my freedman Epimachus, and decide what may appear to you just. Pliny, I have been examining the expenses of the Byzantines. They spent annually twelve thousand sesterces, ninety-six pounds, on the travelling expenses of a legatus bearing to you a formal honorary decree, and three thousand, twenty-four pounds, in sending an envoy to salute the governor of Mysia. Have I done right in cutting down both expenses? Trajan, it is enough for them to forward to me through your hands their decree of homage. As for the governor of Mysia, he will pardon them if they make their court to him cheaper. 3. The Decurians Pliny, in certain towns of the province, the Decurians supranumerum are obliged, on their admission to the Curia, to subscribe some thousand, about thirty-five pounds, others two thousand denarii. It pertains to you, sire, to make a general law. Trajan, no, it is safest to follow the custom of each town, especially regarding those who are made decurions against their wish. Pliny, the law of Pompeius observed in Bithynia requires the age of thirty years for exercising the function of the magistracy and entering the senate. But an edict of Augustus permits the inferior magistracies to be held at the age of twenty-two. I have concluded that those who become magistrates under this edict ought to have seats in the municipal senate, although under thirty years of age. But what about those who, being of the prescribed age for holding magistracies, have not obtained them? Trajan, close the senate house to them. 4. Right of citizenship. Pliny, to obtain the right of citizenship in a Bithynian town, it is necessary, by the law of Pompeius, not to be a citizen of any other Bithynian community. 
many of the decurions in every community are in this position. Should they be excluded from the Senate House? Trajan, no, but see to it that in future the law of Pompeius be better observed. 5. Protection for the towns. Pliny. Byzantium has a legionary centurion sent by the legatus of Lower Mysia, according to her directions, to watch over its privileges. Juliopolis, on the frontier of Bithynia, requests of you the same favour. Trajan, Byzantium is a great city, where a large number of strangers land. Its magistrates require some military assistance. But if I give such help to Juliopolis, all the small towns will want the same thing. It devolves upon you to watch that no injury be done to the cities under your government. 6. Religious Matters Pliny. May a temple of Sibylle at Nicomedia be removed to a more convenient site? Trajan. Yes, the proceeding cannot violate a lex dedicationis, as provincial soil is not capable of receiving consecrations according to Roman law. Pliny. I have been asked for permission to transfer some dead bodies from their present tombs. At Rome a decision of the pontiffs is required. What shall I do here? Trajan, grant or refuse according to the merits of the case. It would be too hard to require provincials to come and consult the pontiffs at Rome in this matter. Pliny, I have found a ruined house suitable for the bath to be built at Prusa. The proprietor built a temple to Claudius in the Prestilium, but nothing is left of it. Is there any objection? Trojan, put the bath in this house, unless the temple was actually completed, for even though it may have disappeared, the soil remains sacred to him. Pliny, it is said that a woman and her sons were buried in the same place where your statue is set up. The statue is in a library, the burial place is in a large court surrounded by a colonnade. I pray you to enlighten me as to the decision of this affair. Trajan, you should not have hesitated about such a question, for you know very well that I do not propose to make my name respected by terror and judgments of maestas. Dismiss the accusation. 7. Military Discipline Pliny, should the prisoners be guarded by soldiers, or, according to custom, by public slaves? I have stationed some of both. Trajan, it is better to adhere to usage, and the soldier must not be called away from his flag. Pliny, two slaves have been found among the recruits. What shall be done with them? Trajan, if they have been enlisted, the fault lies with the recruiting officer. If they have been furnished as substitutes, you must punish those whose places they fill. If, knowing their condition, they have come and offered themselves, execute them. 8. Civil Discipline Pliny, in many towns, persons condemned to the mines or to fight as gladiators are serving as public slaves and receiving wages. What is to be done? Trajan, execute the sentences, except where the condemnation dates back more than ten years, and, in the latter case, cause the convicts to be employed in such menial offices as are nearly penal, such as cleaning the public baths and the sewers. Pliny, a man who was sentenced to perpetual banishment by Bassus, proconsul of Bithynia in 98 AD, has remained in the province, though he has not made use of the right given him by the Senate, after the rescinding of the acts of Bassus, to claim within two years a new trial. Trajan, he has disobeyed the law, sent him in chains to my praetorian prefects for a more rigorous punishment. Pliny, those assuming the toga virilis, celebrating a marriage, inaugurating some public work, or entering on a magistracy, 
are accustomed to invite the decurions and many of the plebs, sometimes more than thousand persons, and to give each one a denarius or two. I am afraid that the numbers at these gatherings are excessive, though you have yourself allowed invitations on special occasions. Trajan, you are right, but I have made choice of your wisdom for the express purpose of reforming all the abuses of the province. Pliny, a great fire has devastated Nicomedia. Would it not be well to establish a society of one hundred and fifty firemen? Trajan, no. Corporations, whatever the name they bear, are sure to become political associations. Supply the apparatus of buckets, warn the proprietors, and, in case of need, employ the populace. Section 3. The Christians The letter of Pliny and the reply of his master which have excited most interest and led to most discussion are those concerning the punishment of Christians. Until Domitian's reign, the Christians had been regarded as a Jewish sect, and had been treated as Jews. Since the death of Gaius, the Jews had never been forced to take part in the divine worship of the emperors, and the Christians shared in this immunity, as the state did not recognize their distinction from the Jews. But the fall of Jerusalem brought about a change in the position of Christianity, by emancipating it from its home in Palestine and leading to its wider propagation among the Gentiles. This propagation led to the recognition of the distinction between Jews and Christians. It was observed that the proselytizing efforts of the Jews proper were attended with unimportant results, whereas the Christian sect increased rapidly. The Roman government was only ready to tolerate the opposition of the Jews to the state religion, so long as there was no danger of Jewish doctrines spreading among subjects of other races. The question, therefore, was whether they should suppress the Jewish religion altogether, including Christianity as a species of Judaism, or should deal with the Christians separately. The mission chose the latter alternative towards the close of his reign. A refusal to worship the emperor's image was regarded as an act of sacrilege, and such worship was required from Christians, though not from Jews. A Christian named Antipas suffered death at Pergamum for refusing to comply with this requisition. At Rome, Flavius Clemens was put to death, and Domitilla banished on a charge of sacrilege, and it seems probable that they were Christian converts. The year 95, in which these things happened, may be regarded as the date at which Christianity came into conflict with the state religion, and was forbidden. As the Christian faith compelled those who professed it to set at naught the established religion, Christians were regarded by the law as sacrilegious, and to be suspected of Christianity was equivalent to being suspected of sacrilege. An important consequence followed. It was one of the duties of every provincial governor to seek out and punish all sacrilegious persons, brigands, robbers, and others who infested his province. As the Christians came under the head of sacrilegi, the governor was not only able, but was required, to deal with them according to his own discretion, without receiving any special imperial instructions. It was part of nervous reaction against the policy of the mission that accusations of this kind of sacrilege were not encouraged, but the principle was not changed. Christians were still punishable, and this was an acknowledged fact when Pliny was governor of Bithynia. The wide diffusion of the forbidden religion in this province became known to Pliny in 112 A.D., when he issued Trajan's rescript Forbidding Societies, Heteriae. The enemies of the Christians took the opportunity of pointing out that they were in the habit of holding illicit assemblies. 
Pliny describes his investigation of the question in his letter to Trajan, of which the tenor is in brief as follows. I have never been present at the resolutions taken concerning the Christians. Therefore I know not for what causes or how far they may be objects of punishment. And I have hesitated considerably in considering whether the difference of age should make any difference in our procedures. Are those who retract their belief to be pardoned? Must they be punished for the profession alone, although otherwise innocent? I have pursued the following method. I have asked them whether they were Christians, and to those who avowed the profession I have put the same question a second and a third time, and have enforced it by threats of punishment. When they have persevered, I have ordered them to be led to execution. For whatever their confession might be, their audacious behaviour and immovable obstinacy undoubtedly demanded punishment. I have reserved some who shared in the same kind of madness, but were Roman citizens, to be sent to Rome. An anonymous information was put into my hands, containing a list of many persons, who deny that they are or ever were Christians. For, repeating the form of invocation after me, they called upon the gods, and offered incense and made libations to your image, and they uttered imprecations against Christ, to which no true Christian, as they affirm, can be compelled by any punishment whatever. I thought it best, therefore, to dismiss them. Others of them said at first that they were Christians, and then immediately afterwards denied it, and said that they had entirely renounced the error several years before. All these worshipped your image and the images of the gods, and they even vented imprecations against Christ. They affirmed that the sum total of their fault or their error consisted in assembling upon a certain stated day before it was light to sing alternately among themselves hymns to Christ as to a god, binding themselves by oath not to steal nor to rob, not to commit adultery nor break their faith when plighted, nor to deny the deposits in their hands whenever compelled to restore them. These ceremonies performed, they usually departed, and came together again to take a repast, the meat of which was innocent, and eaten promiscuously. But they had desisted from this custom since my edict, wherein by your commands I had prohibited all associations, heteriae. From these circumstances I thought it more necessary to try to gain the truth, even by torture, from two women who were said to officiate at their worship, but I could discover only an obstinate kind of superstition, carried to great excess. And therefore, postponing any resolution of my own, I have waited the result of your judgment. To me an affair of this sort seems worthy of your consideration, principally from the multitude involved in the danger. For many persons of all degrees, of all ages, of both sexes, are already and will be constantly brought into danger by these accusations. Nor is this superstitious contagion confined only to the cities. It spreads itself through the villages and the country. It is clear from this letter that Pliny had no doubt in his mind that Christianity was forbidden and punishable. It is also clear that, although this was recognized in principle, yet in practice, Roman governors did not attempt to discover Christians, and did not concern themselves with the prohibited faith, unless it was specially brought under their notice. On the first occasion on which Christians were accused before Pliny, he dealt with them as with persons guilty of sacrilege on his own responsibility. But on the second occasion, when an anonymous letter reached him, containing a long list, he investigated the question more fully, and made two discoveries. 
one, that the number of Christians was very large, and two, that they seemed to be innocent of the crimes of incest and Thaistian banquets which were popularly ascribed to them. Consequently, he hesitated to deal with the superstition as summarily as he had dealt with it before, and referred the matter to the emperor. In reply, Trajan refused to adopt any general measure. The Christians, he wrote, need not be sought out. If they are brought into your presence and convicted, they must be punished. But anonymous informations ought not to have the least weight in any charge whatever. Thus Trajan upheld the principle that Christianity, being a form of sacrilegium, was punishable. But, on the other hand, he prescribed that Christians were only to be punished when they were accused and convicted. They were not, like robbers or sacrilegious persons of other kinds, to be sought after or hunted down. This was an inconsistent position. It was hardly logical to leave in peace the Christian whom no one happened to accuse, and condemn to death the Christian against whom an ill-wisher brought the charge of belonging to the forbidden sect. But the great significance of Trajan's rescript is that it affirmed clearly the attitude of the Roman government to Christianity, and laid down a principle which set Christians outside the pale of the law. This principle formed the basis of the religious policy of the emperors for the two following centuries. It is important to observe that the crime for which a Christian was punished, according to this rescript, was not that of belonging to an illegal association a transgression which would have come under the head of Maestas. Nor was the Christian punished because he had hitherto abstained from taking part in the worship of the emperor or the gods. When a man was accused of Christianity, his judge required him to make a supplication to the emperor's image, and if he refused, punishment was inflicted for this refusal, which was accounted sacrilege. End of chapter 24, sections 2 and 3